your Bibles to Mark chapter <clears throat> Mark chapter three. <clears throat> Last week we spent some time and we looked at Jesus as he ascended the mountain. Now many people remember the sermon that he did on. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine that. And I've heard lots of people say, you know, uh, oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard of that. I live by it. You know, and uh, what I'd like to say is that's very difficult. It's a, it's a tall order. But in the, in the book of Mark, we don't see him sharing what he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but we see what he went up there to do. And that was he, he had 12 men that he called to himself, but it seems that he called all his disciples to follow him to the top of the mountain there. And when he got up to the top, he selected 12 from the larger group that they should be with him and that they should be sent out by him with authority to cast out demons, um, to heal the sick, and to preach good news. Now, that's the result of having a relationship with Jesus is that not only do you get saved and you have your, uh, he becomes your Lord, he becomes your master, you follow him. It's not just about getting the ticket punch though, but he, he wants to use us to reach other people just like he used people to reach us. And I think that's a it's a wonderful thing because it's not so much where, you know, we're you know, okay, well you're a partaker of this program, so we want you to come in and, and be a part of the program to reach other people, although that's part of it. But what happens is as we get to know Jesus and as we learn more about him, we find out that he is a God who who goes. He goes to the people that he cares about. And so as he leaves heaven and he comes down to minister to us, what he does is he he can only stay here a certain amount of time because he was in a physical body. Even if he wasn't, uh, even if he wasn't killed on the cross, he, he eventually would have died. Now we know that he, his purpose to come was to be crucified, but in order for the kingdom of God to continue to grow once he was crucified, he, he left something, he left his spirit to dwell in us so that he could guide us into all truth and that so he could also reach the rest of the world through us. So he picked out the 12 on the mountain there. And it's interesting to me that in this world and in the system that we're all accustomed to, when a person reaches a place of prominence, oftentimes what we see is that person becomes so busy with paperwork and management. And we think about this when we think about any of our bosses or, uh, you know, just you get to a certain spot and you have so much responsibility that you don't have time for the people that are working for you. And it seems like, Oftentimes, just about any job you work at, you don't see your boss a whole lot. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't build the kingdom that way. What he does is he calls us to, to be with him. And that's true for us today. We don't have him physically here, but his name, God's name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. That's just what it means. And so Jesus takes this time and he spends it with these 12 men and invests in them. He doesn't dial it back. He doesn't do less work. It seems as he picks out 12 men to follow him, it would seem that his workload actually becomes more. Because oftentimes we think, oh, if I could just take this responsibility that I have and I had somebody to do it for me, then I would have less work. But we find with Jesus, and we find with, you know, if you've ever had a task that you handed off to somebody, oftentimes it's more work to have somebody else do it. And then it's not even done right. And it seems to me that when Jesus was with his disciples, he invested in them and they didn't get it. They misunderstood him. They went off on tangents. They asked if he wanted to call fire down on people. 
You know, they were hacking off guards' ears. They were doing all these things that obviously Jesus did not come to do. He didn't come to destroy life, but he came to save men's souls. And so Jesus here has, has this new task. He's supposed to continue to pursue and to love on those people that have needs and that come to him. But at the same time, he's, he's still investing in these 12 guys. And he's got a lot on his plate. But we see that as he's got a lot on his plate, he's in this time in the book of Mark where he's being opposed by everybody that comes to him, except for those that have needs. He's being opposed by his family. And what we'll look at tonight is he's opposed by his family. And he's opposed by still this religious group that thought they had it all together, and yet they were missing the point. And so we'll start in verse 20 of chapter 3 of Mark. It says, Then the multitude came together so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So people thought Jesus was crazy. But what I want to look at is who thought Jesus was crazy. Now, in some of your Bibles, it may say above the section that it was his family, and it may not. But what I did was I, I wanted to... It, first off, we need to look at who thought he was crazy, right? I mean, lots of people think di different people are crazy, but oftentimes those people aren't worth listening to in the first place. But in this case, it's his own people. It says there in verse um, 20, these aren't just his friends. These aren't just acquaintances. They appear to be members from his close family. The reason I say this is because the Greek word is par there. It's used, and it just means close beside or belonging to. So these weren't people that he had just met for the first time. This was his own flesh and blood. So the idea of this word is more like family than just acquaintances. Second thing I want to look at is that we need to get straight, is that uh, they think that he has lost his mind because he's taking his life and he's spending it in a way where it looks like he's pursuing and spending all this time with people that he's not related to. And they think he's nuts because he's waiting, you know, and we live in a culture where family is almost worshipped, right? And don't get me wrong, we all have families and, you know, sometimes we have better relationships with our friends than we do our families just because we know them so well. We know our families to the point where we know all their faults, Um. But from their perspective, he's overworking himself for people that may not even stay in his life for a long time. But the people that we're related to, we have this idea that they're always going to be there, so we need to spend the most time with them. And I don't think I would argue with that. I think God's given us earthly families that we can be a part of. Not just to be a part of, but also to ha have this support system so that when we do go through hard times, we've always got somebody there. But what I want to look at is that Jesus here, and at the end of this chapter, he'll deal with this issue, and he'll talk about the difference between an earthly family and a family that's surrounded by Jesus Christ, that is brought together by Jesus Christ. But I can personally relate to uh, this particular instance because when I first started walking with Jesus, I, I, I was just out of college, and I came back, and I lived in my hometown. And, uh, and I had struggled in college. I didn't do well. I went to engineering school and I passed. But I always tell people it was by, by God's grace. I barely passed, like by the skin of my teeth. And I'm not afraid to say that because I know that God used that portion of my life where I thought that I was something to break me down and show me that I wasn't going to be able to achieve anything in my own strength. I didn't have the knowledge to be able to do all the math. 
but he brought me through so that I could get past that chapter of life and move on. And when he did, I, I, made, this, I made this pact, if you will, with God. And it's kind of in, in hindsight, it was kind of a weird prayer. Um, but I prayed, God, if you can get me out of college, just help me pass, get me out of here. And I will go and I will find a place and I will get a home and I will I'll start going to church. I made kind of this vow to him. Now, in Scripture, vows to God are not usually in the positive context, but God heard my prayer, and what He did is He placed me in Farmington, which is where I went to school when I was growing up, although I did live in Doe Run, and uh, you know, I was kind of on the outskirts. And, uh, but the funny thing is, is that when I got my job and I bought a house and I did all the things that I thought would make me happy, I didn't start going to church. I didn't follow through on my vow. But what's cool is that God loved me enough to hear my prayer, know that I did need Him, and to continue to pursue me. And so I started working at the gas company in uh, Farmington, and every time I walked down the hall, there was this guy there at the end of the hall. His name was David Williams, and I still go to church with him. He's friends with Jason there. And, um, but David Williams was always talking about Jesus. Now, this is a middle-aged guy, looked pretty normal, he wasn't weird. And uh, he looked like he was pretty successful and, uh, and, and talked about all kinds of stuff. At that time, he made wine and he did some different things. And, and I was like, all right, well, this guy's talking about Jesus, but he's not like other Christians I've met before. He's not, you know, he's not wearing a super long skirt to try to look, you know, like look the part. Uh, obviously, he wasn't wearing a long skirt. What was I thinking about? I was thinking about the, you know, you, typical, you know, kind of, you go to church, you got to dress a certain way, you got to act a certain way. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but I was just thinking of that. I don't know what guys normally wear. We wear a tie, I guess. But the, the whole idea was, at the end of the hall, there was this guy that seemed normal to me, and yet he called himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what set him apart from other Christians I knew was not so much that he looked apart or he said certain things like, oh, God bless you, my friend, or anything like that. But he knew scripture. He knew the Bible and he was quoting it to me. And I would bring up these questions I had about God and he would be able to answer them, not based on his own opinion, but based on scripture. Well, that's a long tangent, but the point being is that he started inviting me to church and I started going and I started to get involved with some of the different guys and I was just hanging out with them and they seemed normal and they weren't weird and they loved reading scripture and they liked to pray and we would spend all this time together and then after it was over we would pray and we'd all go home. But there would be this group of guys that would hang out in the building and just talk and hang out. Like as soon as church was over, they didn't want to leave right away, which was weird to me because when I was growing up, my mom would take me to church. The minute it was over, we were out. And we never built any relationships with people. We were robbing ourselves of probably the best part about being a follower of Jesus Christ is the family that God gives you. Because I started hanging out with those guys. And I found out that they weren't just hanging out to, hang, to meet each other and hang out more than they would have for the hour we were in Bible study. But they were also spending time cleaning the church. And so I, I wanted to be around them because at the time, what I would go do is I would go home. And I would be alone. I'd be by myself. And so I started hanging out with those guys. I didn't have anything to rush home to. What was I going to do? Go make myself a Hot Pocket? You know, so I would go home. So I was like, I'll stick around with these guys. And they were cleaning the church. And I said, 
I'm just here hanging out, and I, I've never been the type where somebody was sweeping up the floor to stick around and just, like, watch them. So I said, can I help? And they were like, yeah, no problem. You know, grab a broom, plunger, whatever you want to do, clean toilets. And I was like, all right, that sounds great. And I hung out with them, and I enjoyed it. Nobody asked me, hey, can you clean our toilets? No one else will do it. I just felt compelled to do it because I was receiving something from being there. I was getting something out of the Bible study. And so the long and the short of that is I, I found a new relationship that to many would look like you don't even know those guys. You've only known them for a couple of weeks. But what I found in them was brothers and fathers. I found people in my life that could speak wisdom into my life that seemingly was working in their lives, so I'd be silly not to take it. But I found out later that these men, the only thing different between them and me was that they were following Jesus in everything that they did. And so as I studied the scripture and I, I started doing the things that they did, I read the Bible, I got to know them, I got to know their families, they let me hold their babies when they were born. And all of a sudden I was a part of this family that a few months ago I didn't know, but all of a sudden I felt like I was closer to them than my own blood relatives. And so we see Jesus here. He's being questioned by his own blood relatives. They see him pursuing humanity and coming across as this servant and spending all these times with these multitudes of people to the point that there's not enough. He, he doesn't even have time to eat. Every time he goes somewhere, people show up and he doesn't have enough time to deal with his own human needs like eating something and getting something to drink, maybe getting a little nap in. They wouldn't leave him alone. But he doesn't turn them away. What he says is, come unto me. Be around me. I, I would love to spend time with you. He does this ministry that I like to call the ministry of presence. He likes to be around them. And as he's around them, what they do is they learn more about him, and they love him even more. And, and to be honest, most people that are going to spend more time with me aren't going to love me more. They're going to find out that I have more faults. But when we spend more time with Jesus, we find out even more how perfect and how loving and how gracious that he is. And then all of a sudden, it, nobody has to ask us to be around him. We just want to be in the house of the Lord with his people that have experienced the same love and the same grace that he's shown them. So there's that common denominator. The, the body of Christ is built up, as we talked about last week, of these people that in any other circumstance would never meet. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. We just all come from different backgrounds. But when we have that bond that is the salvation of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, all those differences are still there. But they go away because we want to be around one another. And so Jesus knows of all about the friction that's caused when we start to follow Jesus. When I started to follow Jesus and I started being around, every time the doors were open at the church, I was there. I wanted to be there. Well, here's the thing that happened. My family didn't like that because they were getting less time with me. It's not because I didn't care about them. It was just because I wanted to be around those guys because they, they had something that I did not have. They have peace. They had joy. They had patience with one another. They joked around and didn't take it personally because nobody thought that highly of themselves. And so Jesus showed me that these people were imperfect, and yet they were his children, and I wanted to be around them. I've harped on that enough. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 23. I'll have it on the screen for you there. It says, Then one was brought to Jesus, and this is in the midst of this group here, this big crowd. Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And Jesus, of course, as he always does, healed him 
so that the blind and mute man both saw and he spoke, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? So Jesus is in the midst of this, and his family thinks he's nuts, and this guy comes up who's blind, deaf, and mute. What? He's just deaf and blind. Deaf and mute are the same thing. He's deaf and mute. He can't hear anything. He can't... Anyway, and he can't see. And he's also possessed by a demon. So as he's possessed by this demon, and he shows up in this place where Jesus was, doesn't say how he got there. Somebody might have brought him something else. But what it says is he came to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. So they start asking this question. Could this be the son of David? Now, in the Old Testament, when you think about King David, everybody knows David slayed Goliath with one stone. He was a sling and a stone, and he had a pocket full more because everybody says that, you know, David had some other, or excuse me, Goliath had some other brothers. So it was like he was ready to go out there and take care of business. But as we all know him for that, but what he was is he was, God raised him up to be the king of Israel. Because he was the king of Israel, and God was going to raise up through the nation Israel, this Jesus, this Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures speak of, this phrase comes out of the Old Testament that says, the son of David, the rod of Jesse, and there's all these other names, but they're all messianic terms, and they're asking the question, not just could this be the son of some guy named David, but could this be the son of King David that was prophesied to come to rule and reign, and to basically be the salvation of the people of Israel. Now, they thought he was going to be an earthly king that would come in and save them from their physical kingdom because at the time, Rome had, um, Rome had dominion over the area that they lived in. But what Jesus came to be was the son of David. They were right. They were asking the right question. But verse 22 in our text today says, After this, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Now, if you haven't read the Old Testament, then you won't know the phrase Beelzebub. And that's okay, because I didn't know it until like two years ago. But the the phrase Beelzebub, is it's, it's this demon god, or this god. See, when you worship idols, behind them are demons. Uh, but what happens is Beelzebub is this, he's this god of the Philistine people, and they worshipped him. And it literally just means Lord of the Flies. But in the New Testament, if you hear the phrase Beelzebub, it's just kind of a generic term for Satan. Now, everybody's heard of Satan. Around Halloween, you'll see a bunch of people walking around with pitchforks and, and horns on their head, and they'll be dressed up like the devil. Uh, The devil doesn't look like that, though. That's just kind of a a cartoon idea of what he looks like. Uh, what What does he look like? I don't know. But my New Testament tells me that he disguises himself as an angel of light. If someone's going to come in to deceive you, they're not going to dress up like a horned demon. They're going to come in and they're going to look like somebody that you would befriend, somebody you would talk to. And so Satan is what they're, they're, they're accusing him of being in the power of Satan, casting out demons. So right here's a problem. The religious leaders are basically accusing Jesus of black magic. And (laughs) now why did they accuse Jesus? And that's what I wanted to look at. Why did they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan? Well, I don't think it started there. I think that they were, first of all, skeptical that he was the Messiah. 
But second of all, I think they were jealous. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's only been ministering for a year and he's showing all these signs and wonders, which were really just to show that he had the power on earth to forgive sins. But as he's healing people and as he's ministering to people in their needs, even guys that had leprosy that was uncurable, he was healing them, he was cleansing them. And so all of a sudden he's got all these people following them. But these Pharisees and these scribes spent all of their time studying Scripture and they wanted to be the ones that were in the know so that people would follow them. They had this power struggle. They wanted to rule over these people. And the best way to do it was to use religion, to use the guise of religion to, to, to basically puppet them, to make them do whatever they wanted. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, doesn't really do any of the stuff they're doing, but he does minister amongst the people and he meets their needs. And as he does that, people start following him. They want to know more about this guy. And so they're jealous. So Jesus responds to this accusation he gives in parables. Verse 23 through 27 it says, So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. He simply poses a question to these men, to his accusers. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Why would the prince or the leader of the demons cast out the demons that he sent to rule over these people and, and to, to torment them? If Satan started fighting against himself, then there would be no need for anyone else to do so. It would be like somebody starting up a company in town. They want to start a gas station or something. And they go, you know what? This will boost business. I'm going to start a gas station right down the street. It doesn't make any sense, right? Because the people that are going to his gas station, he'd set up a new one and they'd drive down the street and they would go to that one because it was the newer one. You know, the, like the biggest Casey's in the world down, down the street. They got pizza, donuts, all those things. But if, a guy, if the guy that owned the, the gas station down here in Pilot Knob started up the gas station down here in Ironton, it would make sense, right? You know, because there's multiple areas. It's convenient. So it's called a convenience store. But if he started one right down the street from the gas station in Pilot Knob, you'd be like, why did he do that? That doesn't make any sense. It would work out for the consumer because all of a sudden they're competing in gas prices. and We might get a decent price for a gas gallon, right? But it wouldn't work out for the owner because he'd make less money. He'd have two buildings that were essentially covering the same amount of people. Well, Satan would not start competing with himself, one. Number two, he wouldn't cast himself out. He wouldn't close down shop. And so that's what he's saying here. You know, why would, you know, how can Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus is basically revealing to the scribes that this is by far the dumbest thing they've accused him of yet. And I use that word very liberally. It was the dumbest thing they've said to him yet. You know, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. Well, that makes total sense. Why would I cast out myself if I was Satan? And so, you know, Jesus Christ... And then he, he says to them, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, 
and then he will plunder the house. The strong man that he's talking about in this parable is Satan. But the one who binds the strong man can only be somebody that's stronger. You don't have a bouncer in a place to keep, people, to keep strong people out that's a, a wuss. You don't have some short, scrawny guy as a bouncer at a place, right? You have somebody that's the biggest guy in town, you know, whether he's mean or not. You want that guy there because if you're paying him, he's on your payroll, you don't have to worry about crossing him. He's going to take care of you. And in the same way, Jesus is stronger than the strong man, Satan. He's the one that binds the enemy. And he came to do that. He came to bind the enemy and to set captives free. So to attribute the work of Jesus Christ to that of Satan is not only illogical, but it's evidence that you are the, you're on the way to committing what we call the unpardonable sin. Now, a lot of people get all worked up about this because there's always this question. What is the unpardonable sin? Well, rather than me coming up with something, let's just see what Scripture has to say about it. Uh, verse 28, he says, Assuredly, he's saying to this group, remember that, this, in context, he's talking to this group of guys that are attributing what Jesus is doing to the work of Satan. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, okay, wait a minute. Why is he talking about the Holy Spirit all of a sudden? Well, it seems to me that Jesus is doing this physical work that they can see, but behind the scenes is the Holy Spirit. And what the, the job of the Holy Spirit is to, to convict us of sin. But before I jump ahead, let's look at the word blaspheme, because we, we hear this word, and so let's look at the definition. The, the definition for blaspheme, it means to refuse to acknowledge good. Now, a lot of people would say, well, what you call good may be different than what I call good. Well, it means to call evil good and to call good evil. But wait a minute, whose standard are we talking about? Well, this is a Bible study. We're talking about God's standard. So if we're talking about refusing to acknowledge good as being good, to disagree with God means that you're disagreeing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us and He convicts us. He shows us that when we're doing wrong things, it's that voice that says, are you sure that you're going to be doing this? It's the thing that a little kid, when he does something wrong, that he knows is wrong, he, look, you know, he tries to hide it. It's conviction. It draws us to a spot where we realize we've done something wrong. But <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, forgiveness in that verse that we just read, see, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the Son of Men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Okay, well, what's forgiveness? Well, the Greek word there is metanoia, which doesn't matter. But the definition of that word in the Greek just means repentance or to turn from. So let me rephrase it. He who refuses to agree with the Holy Spirit will never repent. Does that make sense? So to refuse to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit as good, or to in effect say that Jesus say that what Jesus says and does is evil, and in doing so, 
ignore or not acknowledge their need for him as Savior before they die as the one sin that's unforgivable. So we would first need to examine what the work of the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus explains this work in John chapter 16, verse 5. If you'll turn there, I'm going to read it, but I just wanted everybody to turn there if you had a Bible. John chapter 16. In verse 5, it says, But now, he's telling these, his disciples that he's getting ready to be crucified, but after that will be the resurrection, but he's comforting them. He says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, you're sorrowful. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he has come, this is what he will do. He will convict the world of sin, he will convict the world of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me, that's why we need to know that we're sinners, Number two, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you will see me no more, because he was the example of righteousness. And I'll convict the world of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If we know that we have sin, that's what the law shows us. If we try to live according to the Ten Commandments, we find out that we're sinners. But then to know that that standard has been lived up to, righteousness. The example that we have is Jesus's life. So he convicts us of righteousness and then he convicts us of judgment because those who walk unworthy and those who sin will be judged. We should be convicted of that. Now I want to define because oftentimes people hear the word condemnation and conviction and they say it's the same thing. But Romans 8.1 says that, <clears throat> says, thank you that there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Okay, but what is that? Well, condemnation will drive you away from God. It'll say you're not good enough and God can't save you. We'll realize that that's never God speaking that to you. That's Satan. He will try to deceive you into thinking that you're past the point of being loved by God. Conviction, however is different. It's completely different. Because conviction, if you're convicted by something that you hear in a Bible study or when you're reading the Bible, or when God's just speaking something to your heart, and it drives you to Jesus asking for forgiveness, that's the difference. Conviction and condemnation. Condemnation drives you away from God. Conviction drives you to God. And so as we look at that, He convicts us of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. The best thing that God can do for us is say, you're not living up to the right standard. But when he does that, it's truth. But it's with love because he says, but my son, I'm well pleased in him. He did live according to the standard that I've set. And he's given his life so that you may have life. And he takes on the death that's caused by your sin. Now in John chapter 3, verse 16, we all know this verse, right? says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But then it goes on in verse 17 through 20 to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, pushed away from God, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation that the light came into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil or dwelling in it, continuing in it, hates the light and does not come to the light lest he be found out, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, when we think about going into a dark room with a flashlight, why do we take a flashlight in there? Because we want to see what's in there. But so often what happens is that sin darkens our hearts. We have these things and sin separates us from God and God wants to come in with the flashlight because he loves us too much to let us dwell in sin. And he wants to point it out. And We go, no, no, don't point it out because then I'll, I'll be convicted and then I'll have to do something about it. And he says, that's the best spot to be in. I want you to be convicted of your sin because I love you. I sent my son to pay for your sin. If you don't know you're sick, you won't come to the doctor. And so he shows that. He shines that light into our hearts. So what this first, this first passage that we read, he came in to convict the world of sin. But the world does not want him lest their deeds and their sin should be exposed. I didn't want God for a time because I realized that if he pointed out my sins, I'd feel bad. But God doesn't care. He, he cares enough to show us that we should feel bad. That's just our conscience that's still tender to him showing us that we need him. When we stop feeling bad when we're doing sin, that, just be worried because that means that we've sinned enough times, we've burned ourselves enough time on the stove of sin to realize that now we, our nerve endings aren't working. And when your nerve endings don't work, you can't feel things anymore. You drop them or you put your hands in places where they'll get cut off. And so God, rather than wanting us to be cut off, he says, be softened. Be aware of the fact that you are a sinner because it's the best thing that can happen. Because once you realize you're a sinner, then you know that you need grace, unmerited favor. You know you need a savior. That being said, these scribes, back to the context, right? These scribes were attributing the works of God, the things that Jesus was doing to Satan. And lest they be convicted of their sins and recognize their own need for forgiveness for their sins against God. The Savior and Lord was standing right in front of them and they were completely blinded to that truth. All their study, all their deeds to be seen by men, and all of it was worthless as they gained the notoriety and they were favored by people, and yet they were missing out on the one thing that they thought they had, and that was favor with God. Jesus warns these men, because he loves them, not just to be rude, he warns these men that if they continue to harden their hearts to the works that God is doing, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their zeal would ultimately lead many of them who were leaders to the Jews to commit sins which no person who practices such things, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, no person who practices such things will inherit the kingdom of God. So I, got, I think I have it up there, Galatians chapter 5. I don't know if you can read it. I can't read it from here, so you probably can't. Sorry about that, but I'll read it. It's that he taught these Galatian believers that were very legalistic in their worship of God. He told them very pointedly, he said, The work of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, 
fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Now, maybe some of these things these guys hadn't committed. You know, down at the end of the list, it has uh, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. But in the middle, there's this list that the Pharisees definitely did do. We have a count of it in Scripture. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, and ultimately murders. So these things, these Pharisees and scribes would ultimately, on the day that Jesus was betrayed, as he was being tried, Pontius Pilate said, I'll release to you this man, this you know, the king of the Jews, as he called him. And they said, no, crucify him. So ultimately they chose and they decided, they said, no, we want you to, we want you to get rid of him to the point of killing him. So essentially they consented to the death of Jesus. That says hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, heresies, envy, murders. You know, that's what these guys were guilty of. They, they attributed what Jesus was doing to the works of the enemy and therefore they wanted him dead and they thought that they were leading people to a religion that would ultimately give them favor with God so during this point all this conversation is going on and his family they're still trying to get him to come and have a word with them because they think he's crazy I mean who doesn't want to talk to somebody that thinks that you're crazy you know if I, I walked up to you and said hey I think you're crazy will you come talk to me you'd be like no I don't want to talk to you. You're crazy. You know, uh, <laughs> you'd call them crazy. I'm not crazy. Verse 31. So then his brothers and his mother came and standing out the side, they said to him, calling him. They sent to him and they were calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, who is my, excuse me. Woo. Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those that were about him, those that were around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, <clears throat> to those that believe that Mary is to be worshipped or prayed to, this is kind of a shot in it's kind of a slap in the face because Jesus himself didn't look at Mary and go, oh yeah, yeah, I do need to have her favor. She needs to be next to me. The way that Jesus looked at Mary was not with contention. He didn't hate her. He wasn't trying to be uh, dishonoring to her. The Bible teaches us to honor our parents. We know that Jesus honored Mary because while he was being crucified, he was dying on the cross and there were multiple people there. It says uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother while he was on the cross, the disciple, he pointed to the disciple. It's, I'll just read from John. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that was John standing there, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciples, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple, John, took her to his own home. So Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, loved his mother so much that he, he knew he was getting ready to go away. And so he made sure that somebody, one of his disciples, would take care of her. So we know he wasn't dishonoring his mom. But what we see is that Jesus doesn't look at uh, family as necessarily those that were blood related to. 
Um, he looks at those who obey his father as his family. <clears throat> Jesus uses this instance to teach the, that those who obey the word of God were Jesus' family. He did not say, whoever goes to Bible study every time the doors are open. He didn't say, whoever highlights the most passages in their Bible. He didn't say, whoever helps make the coffee every week. Whoever reads their Bible every day. Or whoever memorizes the most scripture. Although those things are good. What he said was, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Notice he didn't say father because God is his father. But we also know that Joseph wasn't there, and it looks like, and many commentators say that Joseph, his earthly father, though he wasn't, thank you, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, for my wife. He doesn't look at, anyway, Joseph, many believe he was already passed away by this point. But we know Ephesians 5, chapter 1 And I kind of put it on the banner as our verse for the church. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So if we imitate God and we we believe on his son and as we do his will, we're his children. But what's the will of God 101, as I heard one pastor call it? The will of God 101 is that we we would confess our sin to him and that we would accept his son Jesus as our as our salvation, as our Lord and not just our Savior, but also our Lord. And so if we do the will of God, then we are brothers. We are sisters of Jesus Christ. And if we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, then we are children of God, just as Jesus is God's Son. I can't really fathom what that means because Jesus is so much higher than me. But at the same time, it's like he he makes us his sibling. But what I love about this, to balance it out, is because many times when people start walking with the Lord, those that are closest to them start to look at them and think, you know, like, oh, so you're a Christian now. Like, what tragedy caused you to get to that point in your life? You know, <laughs> like, is that all you had left? You just had to go to church, you know? And, and, but what I would say is that God gives us a family that's closer than any other family I've ever had. He gives us a family that is there when, they're, you know, the, the, your other family isn't able to be there. Or if you don't have a family, I know many people, I know uh, one guy in particular, he doesn't have a dad, and so God's given him a earthly dad kind of through church. You know, he's got people in his life that can, uh, can fill that, that role. But in Psalm 27, verse 10 through 14, I don't know if I put it up there or not. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's, it's my favorite psalm in the world. There's like 150, so it's hard to pick one, but... Uh, God used this to minister to me when I was really struggling. Um, I had started walking with the Lord, and I had been through some hard times. And uh, one of my family members who's not a believer said, Well, if you love God and you're at church all the time, and and you're going every time the doors are open, then how come God isn't taking care of you? How come everything's not going right for you? And I had read this psalm in the midst of my struggle, and... uh, I love what this psalm says in Psalm 27, verse 10. It says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living." 
Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And it makes me think because Jesus is going through this opposition. It seems his mother and his family have forsaken him. And the religious leaders at the same time are pouncing on him. And what it shows me is that Jesus can relate with me when I'm going through these struggles. Somebody looks at me and says, you're insane, you're nuts. You know? And at the same time, he's still reaching out to these, these uh, Pharisees and scribes. But Jesus meets the opposition from multiple angles in today's passage. But he keeps on pursuing those that, that come to follow him. In the meantime, we as Jesus followers are no greater than he. We're going to come across struggles. Many will come as we follow him, and many will come because we follow him. They'll, conf- they'll accuse us of being evil, but many will come for our, from our own families. Many will accuse us of insanity. But there's one thing that I know. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The trials of being misunderstood, whether it's because you did something right or wrong, the trials of being misunderstood or accused falsely, however, are things that, are grown, that, that grow in us a longing for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And that is how Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be willing to go through this opposition for the sake of spreading the truth so that others could hear about the same Jesus that we know. May we truly understand the family that God's given us, and at the same time, may we lead others to Him. May we truly have hope in Him. Tonight we're going to take communion. Uh, We do this once a month, but tonight we're going to do it, and uh, I'll pray, and then the worship team can come up, and then we'll take communion. There's a couple of guys that are going to help hand it out. But I just want to, uh, as we think about communion, I was going to read a passage from my real Bible here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we were talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's, you know, we talk about it as the unpardonable sin. But the only way that it's unpardonable is when you spend your entire life and you say, Lord, not yet, I'll come to you later. Not yet, I'll come to you later. And then at the end of your life, You've done it so many times that you're just like, he won't forgive me. You know, people get to that spot. Well, let me tell you that, you know, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. So if Jesus has been showing you some things, and for a long time you've said not yet, or, you know, uh, I believe, but I don't really want to follow, just let me encourage you. Um, It's not too late, and this is the best time to do it. The day of salvation is today, so... If you're here tonight and you heard this message and you're like, hey, that's me. I've struggled with that. You know, I, I don't, I haven't really wanted to follow the Lord, but I see what he's doing is good. And I want to call it good. I want to agree with God for the first time. Then uh, maybe you should pray and ask the Lord to do that. Ask him to save you. Uh, but as we take the Lord's communion, I want us also to be aware of the things that maybe we are of the Lord's. and We, we have been walking with him, but we've been caught up in some sin and we're dealing with with some things we know are wrong, but we just won't, we're not at the spot where we're just asking for forgiveness. Well, if that's the spot that you're in, then I'd like to ask you to to pray and to to deal with it with the Lord before you take communion, because the worst thing that we can do is take communion without examining ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the 